and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll discuss the relationship between disruption and growth. While many firms believe the disruption will create growth, the reverse is actually the reality. Growth creates disruption. For instance, while we've often discussed the correlation between innovation and disruption, disruption is much harder. As we have also discussed, while technology may enable disruption, it is often the application of existing technology in new ways that disrupts an industry. Finally, while disruption is not always fast, it is the lack of reaction to this disruption that catches incumbents flat-footed. I am very excited to have Charlene Lee on the show today. Charlene is the founder and senior fellow at Altimeter, a profit company. She is the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Open Leadership, and co-author of the book, Groundswell. Her latest book, The Disruption Mindset, is the culmination of years of research and experiences in the field, helping leaders and organizations transform. In today's episode, you will learn the secret of successful disruption, the importance of deep dive research, the qualities of a disruptive leader, how to change the existing cultures, and where to start. Welcome to the show, Charlene. As you know, I'm a big fan of Altimeter, having written a number of stories on your research in the past for the financial brand. Having recently picked up your book, The Disruption Mindset, it is clear that the business world is still having trouble with the concept of disruption, isn't it? Absolutely. We think we want to be disruptive, but then we come face to face with it and we go running away as fast as we can. You know, sometimes we even stumble on the concept or the terminology of digital dis- transformation. How do you define digital transformation? We're working on a new report right now. And the way we're thinking about it is that digital transformation is really about becoming more digital. The transformation itself isn't the goal. It's becoming more digital. But even that's not the goal. The goal is to create the ability to create business transformation, to be able to become operationally more efficient and excellent, to change new business models so you can serve your existing customers in better and more efficient ways. But it could also even be pivoting your company, uh, having a new business strategy, that kind of transformation. And it's clear today that the way you create that competitive advantage is in many ways through your digital capabilities. Well, it's interesting, and I keep on referring to the fact, certainly in the banking industry, that there's a lot more than simply a cool digital app, that we have to avoid the pretty veneer without fixing underneath the foundation of what it means to become digital, don't we? Yes, we do. And, And oftentimes, you focus on the digital part of digital transformation and not the transformation part. And I think in many ways, because people think it's a bright, shiny object, all I have to do is make that a reality, just adopt that technology and we'll be done. And the reality is when they come face to face with that transformation part, they go, well, this is hard. We didn't expect it to be hard. So let's not do it now. (laughs) This is is more than we bargained for. Yeah, and we tend to talk about it a lot more than doing it. I think you and I both believe that in the research we've done is that it's interesting because more than any other business concept that I've been involved in, people understand what they need to do. In many cases, they pretty much understand what they need to do to achieve it. It's that first movement, that change in behavior that they have to make, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I fundamentally believe that that change 
again, this is hard. We like things to be constant and the same. And when we come in and actually face-to-face with that change, first of all, we didn't expect it. We didn't expect that it was going to be this hard. And then we're not prepared for that, that difficult step. And I talk about transformation and change, not about this in big, huge sweeping pictures, but in terms of that first step, if you anticipate how hard that first step is and then prepare yourself to take it, knowing that it's going to be the beginning of a fairly long journey, the hardest part is taking that first step. Early in your book, on that first step, you reveal that there's a pretty simple secret to achieving disruptive growth, don't you? Yes. One of the key ideas here is that if you can focus on your future customers, then that is what I have found to be the consistent idea and the behavior that all of these disruptive companies do. And the reason why that's so powerful and yet so difficult is that it allows you to think about that picture of the future, to understand who this future customer is, and then make sure it's aligned across the entire organization. And when you have that alignment, then you can say, we're going to have to take these difficult decisions, these difficult choices today, and take that big gulp (laughs) and then really decide we're going to do this and then be committed to doing it. Because that's the only way you get to that future. Yeah, and you talk about going after that future customer. But in today's environment where virtually every industry is doing quite well, stock market is, you know, hitting new highs and profitability is pretty good, not continually going back to the customers that have gotten you there, it's a tough thing to do, especially at times of prosperity, isn't it? Yes, it is. And this is what Clay Christensen wrote in his wonderful book, seminal book, The Innovative Dilemma in that we are pulled and blinded by our beautiful, profitable customers. Like, it makes total logical sense that we would want more of these customers. And the the reality is they don't necessarily represent your future. They represent your today. And it's fantastic if you can reap the benefits of serving them. But I think the paranoid survive in many ways. They realize that they may be the present, but they don't necessarily represent the future. So you have to constantly be looking to the future, looking at the edges, at the unprofitable customers, at the customers who don't even exist today, and begin thinking about how you will serve them. Let's just take the banking industry one. So what we have is a situation in the banking industry where current customers, especially those that represent probably the older set that probably have more revenue potential for most financial institutions, most financial institutions look at the branch customer And they don't want to let go of them, but trying to grab onto that future customer that's much more digital, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, we see organizations, some of the largest in the country, continually to build branches. But while it may serve your future customer in those aberration or those exception places, it's hard, again, to grab onto the – I use the rope course as an example where, you know, if you don't jump to the next rope pretty quick in that swing – It just gets harder because you get more entrenched in the past. You know, what do you recommend to organizations such as banks that have such a profitable existing legacy base on how they can actually identify their future customers? Again, this is why future planning is so important. Many times when people are doing strategic planning, they're just putting together the budget for the next year. And that's a budget. That's not a strategic plan. And so I would encourage them to think, three years, five years, 10 years down the line, where do you think you need to be? 
and then take a really very close look at how the market is changing in demographics. And they know this and they say, I don't want to deal with it. And so if you want to bring longevity to your firm, if you want to truly build value for your customers and value for your shareholders, then you're obligated to talk about this and to make those investments. One of my favorite examples that I put in the book is Adobe. And they, you know, happy, very profitable customers in the creative marketing space. They pretty much dominated it. And they were just worried to bits about what the future looked like because they had packaged software and the world was becoming more mobile, more in the web, more collaborative. And their software was updated every 18 to 24 months. And they said, this is going to be a huge risk. And also, we're not serving our customers well. So they decided to go into the cloud, even though no customers were asking for it, even though employees were just totally against it because they were going to have to change everything that they did. And even though they knew their revenues and especially their income would take a hit for 24 months and they're a publicly traded company. And you know what happens when your income goes down as a publicly traded company? Your stock usually goes down too. And they made this change because it was the right thing to do for the business, the right thing to do for the customers. And they painted this really compelling picture of what the world would look like in the future. And as their income went down, the stock price went up because of their vision of the future customer and their ability to share that with the markets. It's a beautiful type of disruption and transformation that they went through. You know, you give examples such as, uh, as you mentioned, Adobe. You use um, Facebook. You use um, companies like Apple that continually upend their current models before they've basically seen their entire life cycle and find ways to actually identify who those future customers are and move toward them. How does an organization avoid simply going after the next hot segment that everyone else is talking about? How do they actually identify who their future customers are going to be. Again, I keep saying focus on your customers by a couple of different ways. It's really understanding who your customers are, making the job of every single person to think about that future customer and putting them in your dashboards for every single person, making sure that you have a really good customer advisory board. For example, don't put your most profitable, beautiful customers on there. Put the ones who frankly complain the most who demand the most of you, who you think represent what these future needs are going to be. And I think very importantly, create some empathy maps of who these people are, understand what do they do, what do they think, what do they say, and what do they feel? By understanding them as not transactions, but as real people whose needs are, you, you don't really truly understand. You begin to build that understanding across the organization. Your book, The Disruption Mindset, it's interesting because it also gets into the whole issue of you have to change the thinking within an organization. You know, again, my our background is in banking, and in banking, you have so many legacy individuals that have relied on legacy thinking. They've come up the organization as one many times. Uh, you have all your leadership probably started in the bank at roughly the same time. You've gone through management training where you're you're trained how we do things. How do you actually achieve a disruption mindset where you actually change the line of thinking from business as usual to, let's call it business as unusual? I can't describe this as something like turning the battleship. When you're going full speed ahead, it takes a huge amount of energy and everybody on that ship working together to turn that ship. 
And I think that's one of the biggest problems with banking and, and these large traditional institutions. It's really difficult to turn the ship unless everybody is aligned. And I have an example of a bank in the book, ING Bank uh, in the Netherlands, where they blew up everything. <laughs> they blew it all up because they said, this is going to be too hard to change on an incremental basis. So we're just going to just wholesale change the way that we do business. And they took their headquarters, made it all agile, quote, fired everyone, hired them back based on their ability to think about the customer. Well, it's interesting because we've actually had Sophie Heller, who uh, now works for BNP Paribas, that was at ING in the Netherlands. And it's interesting because more and more organizations are trying to find those people that have gone through the experience of transforming an existing organization to become more transformational, more digital, more disruptive, as you say. And, you know, it's interesting because your research at Altimeter, as well as the research that we've just published on digital transformation in banking, both our research recently has found that those organizations that are most successful have actually moved the ownership of digital transformation further up the organization. I think your research last year pointed out that more and more organizations are assigning the head of the digital transformation process to the CEO, which I think is interesting because it really underlies the importance of to have a good organization culture, to have it change, you really need the person at the very top to buy in, don't you? Yes, because this is something so hard, so transformational. You need the top people in the company to truly believe in this and to never waver, no matter how hard that journey is. They have to truly believe in this. And one of the questions I get from people is, what do I do if I'm not that top person? I may be on the executive team or one layer below, or I could be at the front lines or a manager right at the front lines. How do I adopt this disruption mindset? Do I just wait until that chief executive says this is the way to go forward? Or what do I do? And my sense is that you can begin no matter where you are to act in this way, because all it takes is to focus on that future customer. It's not to say you ignore your current customer, but how do you orient your entire team so that when the rest of the organization is ready to think about it this way, you're all being lockstep with each other. So rather than just forcing it on people, how do you get a total buy-in from your organization for a shift in focus? Because, you know, again, business as usual, when money is flowing well, when profits are good, when nobody really is out there, very few people are out there finding the, or desiring change, how do you get a buy-in? Again, painting that picture of who that future customer is, is a big part of it. But the second part of it is really saying, this is the plan. You're either with the plan or you're not with the plan. And here's the plan and the behaviors that we're expecting us to work towards that plan. And the behaviors might be really different. And we're expecting you to change that behavior. And as a leader, that's all you're asked to do is you're asked to create that plan and the behaviors and the actions that you want against that plan. And then to hold everybody together on that and to set the expectations that if you're not on this plan, if you're not on board with creating these behaviors, then you can't be part of the team. And everyone's going to be looking at you because your credibility is on the line, your strategy is on the line. This whole new plan is on the line if you hold to that or not. So in your research, what have you found to be the difference in leadership styles at disruptive organizations? I think one of the biggest parts is because that is so hard. It's one thing to punitively say to people that you have to do this. It's another thing for what I call creating a movement. 
And so one of the most important things you can do as a leader is to create the sense that this future is something worth fighting for and acknowledging it's going to be a very hard journey. One of the best examples of this was Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream. And he gave the speech at the end of a very long day to kick off the civil rights movement to give people this picture of what we're going to be fighting for. So what's that picture that you have? And so the leadership archetypes that I have found, this is the research I did with a thousand leaders all around the world. I found that there were four different types determined by two factors. One, an openness to mindset, openness to change mindset. And the leadership behavior very specifically about empowering and inspiring others to take action. And that all goes back to creating that movement and your ability to create that movement. So it's interesting. In your book, you address something that is like the elephant in the room, the whole issue of gender gap, where females you many times are usually less disruptive. They have a different style than men do. Is there a gender gap in the whole movement towards transformation and disruption? And how do we work to get the voice of the people that in many cases are some of our best leaders out there and listen to? Yeah, my research did find a significant gender gap, and especially in the U.S., less so in all the other countries we studied. And I think partly is because these other countries like the U.K., Germany, and Brazil all have had women political leaders in places where they were creating a lot and are creating a lot of disruption. And we don't have that here in the U.S. And so I think one of the biggest issues is when you've been trained your entire life growing up and being a career to toe the line, to be a team player, and that you feel like you're penalized when you raise your hand and disagree, whereas your male counterparts are applauded and encouraged to do this more. I think the first step is as leaders ourselves developing these disruptive leaders, we have to be aware that this gap exists and that if you have ever been the only person in a room, the only woman, the only person of color, the only old person, the only young person, you know what it's like to have to raise your hand because you stick out already. It's incredibly hard to raise your hand and say something to have a different, a diverse point of view. So it's incumbent on us to make it as safe as possible for that person, to encourage them to raise that voice because that voice is worth being heard. It's important, as you said, to let people know that there is a voice there, but as you also reference in the book, the fact that, you know, in many cases, these voices, these people that aren't as heard are also some of your most empathetic people. They understand the marketplace many times better because they listen more than talk. It's one of the challenges of the male style, I guess. But you also reference cultures, and I was fortunate enough to just recently visit China and became so aware of the fact that the overall culture in China is one that is more accepting of change, is more accepting of disruption. And as a result, the whole R&D focus, the whole ability to move markets, to move business because of the openness to new technologies and new ideas is just tremendous. I mean, it's exciting. But so you actually saw also that there's differences in different parts of the world from a cultural standpoint as a foundation. Yes. And what I found interesting is that culture is simply made up of beliefs and behaviors. If you want to change your culture, you change your beliefs and you change your behaviors and vice versa. And what you find is that in different parts of the world, there are different beliefs about what's possible and how you think about the world. 
So one of the biggest differences, like in China and Brazil, there have been huge amounts of change. And so the leaders from those countries are much more comfortable being disruptive and describing themselves as being disruptive and capable of driving that change. In Germany, somewhere in the middle, and then UK and the US by far the lowest in terms of their disruptive leadership capabilities. So I worry a little bit, being an American citizen, that, you know, where is that belief that we can create that change, that exponential change? It's not necessarily embedded in our leadership and absolutely embedded in the leaders of so many different countries. Well, it's also becoming political. Every country I go to, um, be it South Africa, be it Europe, be it China, and certainly in North America, the pushback on change, the pushback on moving forward is getting strong from a political perspective. And what that does, it makes it even more difficult for governmental units to regulate change and to make it so it's more possible. I mean, in the banking industry, we see that the overall acceptance of new entries into the marketplace is the lowest in North America, in the United States and Canada. And a lot of that, yes, it's partially based on trust of legacy organization, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know, our regulators tend to be our oldest bankers, tend to be the people that have been in industry the longest, and the voice of the small business that doesn't want to change becomes louder and louder, and it becomes very difficult when regulations even push back on disruption and change, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I would put this caveat, and I use ING Bank as an example. They're in the EU, they're in the European Union, which is highly regulated for banks, and they were able to do this. This has less to do with having regulations being removed and more about, given these regulations, how will you truly transform your organization to be capable of understanding your customers better? That has less to do with what you offer and more importantly, with how you work, how you will enter into this relationship with customers. And I think in many ways, by acknowledging these are the constraints, these are the walls of the sandbox that you're going to work in, Let's be really clear about what those walls are. But within that sandbox, we can do anything. And what we believe now oftentimes in regulated industries is that even though we know what the sandbox is, we think we can't do anything in that sandbox. That all we can do is just take that sand and dump it into the pail and that's it. But within, as long as you stay within those regulations, you're good. What do you see as biggest challenge that organizations have accepting the concept of a disruption mindset and, and actually moving forward on disruption and transformation? By far the biggest challenge, the belief that's holding them back, is that I don't know what the future looks like. And I need to be sure. I have to be certain. I have to be perfect. I can't be wrong before I take that move forward. And I think that's the most debilitating thing because I don't think anybody's ever asked anybody to be perfect. Even businesses and organizations, especially in places like healthcare and banking, we know mistakes get made. And we're asking you and requiring that you do your best, be excellent in everything that you do. But when things go wrong, be accountable for it, but keep moving us forward. Because we know that if you don't keep taking those risks, taking those places where you're going to push the envelope, move out of your comfort zone, then we won't be able to benefit from that too as well. It keeps coming back to that relationship. How will you build that? How will you be open and transparent about what is going on in your relationship with your customers and your employees in your entire ecosystem? I think that's what people are asking for, not the fact that you're perfect. 
Your book was an excellent read. I really enjoyed it. And now I'm going to go back and read some of your previous books as well. But um, for people that are interested in your perspective on transformation, on disruption, and on business and leadership in general, how do they reach you and how do they pick up your books? Sure. They can reach me at charlenelee.com. And my email is charlene at charlenelee.com. You can follow me on all the usual social platforms with my name, Charlene Lee. And there's also one other thing. I realize how difficult this is. So I started a new community called Quantum Networks. So it's quantum-networks.com. And the idea is to bring disruptors together so that we can support each other in our quest to create this kind of exponential change. Oftentimes, you may feel like you're the only person in your organization who's seeing that this need for transformation needs to happen. So I'm really trying to bring people together, create content, community, and supporting each other in this quest. I actually put in an application to join that last night and put you down as a reference. Um, so, you know, it, it's, a, it's an app, too, um, that you can download to uh, access that network. And, yeah, it's a very strong point. So... Again, thank you very much for being on the show. I look forward to seeing your research come out and to write about in the financial brand as well as talk to you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to end today's podcast a little differently than what we've done in the past. Um, This is based on a recommendation from Charlene Lee where she said, you know, it might be good for you, meaning me, to give a little bit of a perspective on what was just discussed and maybe a take. So I want to look back on what Charlene said, and I think the most important takeaway of today's episode was really that in order for disruption to take place, in order to achieve a disruption mindset, you not only need leaders that have that mentality, the ability to look and say, who are my future customers going to be, but then to take action on that. Because we all have heard the leaders that simply talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. At the end of the day, those organizations that survive are going to be those that have leaders that have a disruption mindset, are able to transform their organizations culturally and down the organizational chart to move in that direction and really get a grasp of who their future customers are going to be and not to rely just on making small iterative movements to improve the relationship or improve the profitability of your current customers. So thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Rate is a top 10 banking podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. While it only takes a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of Banking Transformed to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. Finally, if you haven't already done so, be sure to register for the Financial Brand Forum being held from April 27th to 29th at the Aria Hotel in Las Vegas. Join me and more than 2,500 of your fellow bank and credit union executives as we gain valuable insights from the likes of Seth Godin, Martha Stewart, Steve Young and Jerry Rice, Brett King, Omar Johnson, and dozens of other leaders who will share their perspectives during this amazing star-studded event. And be sure to arrive early to catch the private performance by Jay Leno on Sunday night. Go to the financialbrandforum.com and register today. 
This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lombrake, and our audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, have a great week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.